0: From Washington, D.C. and around the world. This is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Defense Department used, quote, evaluative gymnastics to justify giving the Jedi cloud contract to Microsoft, according to a court filing from Amazon Web Services. The company's legal filing says its bid was lower than Microsoft by tens of millions of dollars. FedScoop reports the filing says the Pentagon wanted Microsoft to win and did what it needed to to make it happen. The first pilot programs for the cybersecurity maturity model certification program are on the calendar. The Defense Department has a list of seven acquisitions in the latter part of 2021 as possible tests for the certification process. The department says bidders will go through the process and the winner will need to get the certification by the time the department awards the contract. The Council of Inspectors General has a new leader. The IG at the National Science Foundation, Allison Lerner, is the new chair of the council. She's been vice chair since 2015. FCW reports Lerner named interior IG Mark Greenblatt as the new vice chair. The big hack of federal agencies will likely turn out to be the worst since the Office of Personnel Management breach in 2015. And from a national security perspective, it may be even worse. Tony Scott is CEO of the Tony Scott Group. He was chief information officer of the United States when the OPM breach became public. Tony, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Do you see parallels between this breach and the OPM breach?
1: Well, I think there's one key difference, which is we already know that this one is... Much more widespread, both across uh, federal agencies and even the private sector. Um, the Solar Winds uh, technology that was breached was, you know, fairly widely used, and um, and we know now that the OPM breach was, you know, pretty much contained to that uh, agency. So, in terms of overall impact, I would say this one feels um, more widespread. Uh, Obviously, in the OPM case, sensitive information that was compromised was, um, you know, of great concern. So there's some differences, but this one appears to be very widespread from a just surface area perspective.
0: Let's go back to the summer of 2015. You instituted at that time a 30-day cyber sprint. What did that accomplish, and could something like that work again to understand the damage done, the, uh, the postures of each of these organizations in the wake of this?
1: Well, if you'll recall, Francis, um, after the OPM breach, we realized that some of the major contributing factors to the OPM breach were uh, two-factor authentication that uh, needed to be much more wide widely adopted. Um, I think when we started this cybersecurity sprint, we had somewhere in the high forty percent, uh, low fifty percent adoption across the whole federal government. And at the end of the sprint, I think we were in the you know low ninety percent, and it improved uh, from there. And we also focused on um, uh, you know system administrators who had. Uh, The number of people who had uh, elevated privileges. And then we, uh, the third thing that we focused on was unpatched uh, vulnerabilities. And so all of those we made, you know, really significant progress on during that 30 day period. This one I think is a little different um, in that I think the longer term cure is going to be better management of software supply chain uh, risk management. So Uh, knowing uh, all of the uh, origins and and places where all of the software comes from that you're using in your agency. In this case, the SolarWinds Orion software was compromised because of their update process. And uh, it took way too long to discover that that uh, update process uh, from SolarWinds had uh, had a piece of malware in it that, uh, you know, was undiscovered for a long period of time. So, uh, you know, the, the uh, work uh, that's going on both from a DOD perspective and then the NIST guidance on um, supply chain risk management, I think are the right tools. And now we just need a lot more implementation of all of that uh, to understand where our supply chain risk management uh, particularly from a software perspective, is concerned. I imagine you had extensive
0: interactions with members of Congress after the OPM breach. I'm sure you recall that Donna Seymour became, unfortunately, a, a punching bag, just took tremendous uh, amount of flack from the Hill in the wake of the OPM breach. Is there somebody accountable for this or some entity accountable for this? Or do we just have to start to chalk these up to the nature of nation-state interactions, nation-state espionage in the 21st century?
1: Well, I, I think this is a case where um, there probably are uh, is some accountability that's in order. Um, you know, the investigation and and all of the things that will naturally happen as a result of this will determine that. But let's not lose focus. It's the bad guys out there that are— doing the harm. And we need to, you know, continually be beefing up our resources and our uh, intelligence in terms of, you know, who the bad guys are, what they're doing and what we can do to respond from a, uh, from a, um, you know, whole of government perspective in the case of government and helping our businesses and industries uh, as well. Um, And it's clear that as before, this is a big arms race and it's it's going to go on for a long time. Um, but, uh, you know, I think the investigation and the follow-up will determine, you know, whether there uh, was culpability in some way or negligence or those kinds of things. Too early to make that judgment now. Um, I do feel bad about Donna getting the blame because clearly, in her case, she was one of the people that was at the forefront of fighting a lot of this stuff and... I think some members of Congress failed to realize the extensive efforts that she and others had already been working on and, in fact, were leading uh, at the time uh, that the incident happened.
0: Tony Scott, thanks very much. It's great to have you on today. My pleasure. Up next, assessing the damage done from that solar winds breach. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how you'll know if you've been hacked and how to move forward. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The cybersecurity and infrastructure security agencies directed every uh, government agency to disconnect from the SolarWinds Orion product in response to the cyber breach. The National Security Council now calls for a whole-of-government effort to, quote, identify, mitigate, remediate, and respond to the incident. Bob Bigmans, founder of 2B Secure and former chief information security officer at the uh, the, uh, Central Intelligence Agency. Bob, welcome. It's great to see you again. We chatted a little bit before we went on the air. My sense is that this is similar to when someone breaks into a home, the people come home and they see their stuff's been thrown all over the place in addition to stuff being missing. Am I thinking about this the right way? And if so, how does one as a government agency go about cleaning up after the bad guys
2: yeah good morning francis um uh, it's actually worse than uh, someone breaking into your house and throwing your stuff about uh you have uh, no indication of uh, who did this uh it doesn't look like the lock's been picked uh it doesn't look like there's fingerprints uh and the, that camera you have connected to your internet is showing you pictures of uh springtime in uh, in moscow um that, you know, this is a this is what happens when you get attacked by a nation state that has a pro- project plan for the attack, uh, and basically works from that and has all the tools and skills necessary to do uh, take advantage of the I guess the soft underbelly here of uh, IT, right? And um, you, you know, everyone talks about sophisticated attacks, sophisticated attacks, but when you see one, <laughs> you, you you that's when you really know you've ha- you've had one. Um, so yeah there's there's not a whole lot at this point the government can do. Uh, you know CIsa has uh, put out some uh, guidance on how to look for indicators of compromise. Uh, but you know there there's frankly not a whole lot there.
0: What did we not have that we thought we had or that we needed? Uh, the discussion over the last what ten years has been coming out of the Department of Homeland Security about Einstein and the iterations of Einstein. The Department of Homeland Security, turns out, was one of the agencies that was breached as a result of this attack. What do we need to prevent this again? Or is there there no such thing? Well, a little of both. You know, I remember
2: as a result of the 9-11 attack, the panel came back and said there was a lack of imagination, right? Um, I think the same thing is true here. Um, The people who built Einstein 1.0, 2.0, you know, didn't understand that uh, there could be attacks where people spoof the addresses and use internal domains in the United States as opposed to just external domains. Uh, they also look for signatures of previous attacks. Well, this was a brand new attack and there was no signature. So, you know, partially we're limited by our technology and somewhat by our our, our lack of imagination. Uh, you know, and, and as I said before, you, you know, this is what the uh, four or five top cybersecurity organizations, offensive cybersecurity organizations do for a living. Uh, our ability to detect what they're doing, given the limited capabilities of our technology, um, you know, today are, are, are very, very hard. And, um, you know, the, what can we do to prevent this in the future? Uh, we have to change, frankly, fundamentally change the way IT works. You know, today, Um, These companies develop the software all around the world. They give out their signing certificates to their code to all their developers in India, Russia, China, wherever these modules are built from. They put them together, they got themselves a product, they deliver it to the end customer. um, And we're built for performance, speed and capabilities. And uh, again, cybersecurity takes a back seat. That's what hackers always take advantage of.
0: I have a hard time imagining, though, Bob, that we don't also have people that do this for a living. And I wonder, if we do, why they're siloed from the people who are defending for a living and not doing that kind of information sharing. It's classic government conversation we've been having for as long as I've been in the space, 15 years, that this group doesn't talk to this other group. But is it as simple as that is the problem that we have now, Bob?
2: Uh, A little bit. You know, this is this is no different than uh, human intelligence uh, and trying to do defense again in the cyber counterintelligence world. Right. The offense and the defense talk two different disciplines, two different lexicons and don't don't often talk to each other. The bigger part, as I said before, is the fact that there is only so much we can do in the cybersecurity realm, given the state of where it is today. Uh, we've built this massive global infrastructure of code development and code support. Uh, people talk about, well, you know, Solar has you know direct access to our to our networks. You know how security works these days. Today, your government agencies are connected through these various uh, cybersecurity company cloud services in AWS or Azure or wherever they're at, right? And there are multiple multiple connections into government networks from these various companies. Th- this is. This is what we built. And you're not going to be able to change it overnight. It has to take some thinking. And as you and I have discussed many times, it's it's going to have to take some legislation, frankly.
0: 30 seconds left. Bob, what's the implication for remote work over the next at least six months after an attack like this? Yeah, well,
2: I think, uh, number one, <clears throat> if I was a federal agency CISO, one of the things I would do is strongly strengthen Uh, my remote work authentication and my remote work isolation from the network. You know, um, part of the attacks that we've seen recently uh, using a protocol called RDP uh, have also been uh, used by sophisticated hackers to penetrate networks. So again, I I would do a lot of work to fully upgrade my um, network access controls. I would do more isolation. And most importantly is, you know, I would, really relook at how we do identity management and determine if you're coming in from a remote site, what you get access to. Um, One of the reasons why they chose tools like SolarWinds is government agencies and everyone has their agents on every part of the network. Uh, And perhaps you need to rethink uh, that strategy
0: until we have a better approach. Bob Bigman, thanks very much, as always. Sure. Thank you. Up next, a first draft for management strategies for the Biden administration. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the first round of suggestions for a new president's management agenda. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. One of the first tasks the new Biden administration will take on at the Office of Management and Budget is a new president's management agenda. The biggest difference between the new one and President Trump's PMA is managing a federal workforce that's mostly working remotely. Stan Soloway is president and CEO of Solero Strategies. is writing about the new PMA in Washington technology. Stan, welcome. Thanks for coming on. You write in this piece, this time around, we should expect or at least hope for a new kind of agenda. Is that because the challenges and and problems have changed between 2017 and 2021, or is there something that you saw that was wrong with the president's management agenda the Trump administration introduced?
3: Well, I, it, well, I think it's a combination of things, Francis. I think first of all, the, the circumstances we're in are so different than they were in 2017. Clearly, as you mentioned in the open, the, the pandemic and the, the the remote work and the, the changing face of work and how people are working. So that that has to work into it. I think we've also had a period of real degradation of the civil service over the last four years, which has to be addressed in the management agenda. But beyond that, um, you know, it's it's clear that there's going to be a continuation and expansion of some initiatives that started 15 years ago that we're going to have a constant administration to administration expansion kind of on a nonpartisan basis of things like digital transformation and really thinking through technology questions. But I think we're at a point now and where I would hope we would be going is to that next level. And the next level really is, how do we, let me back up and say, if you think about digital as an enabler to to execution of work in a much more productive, efficient, customer-centric way, you also have to think about what the enablers of the digital are. So how do you get under the hood and now start really getting at some of those arcane business processes and policies that are limiting the degree of innovation you can bring at at the front end? Because by definition, they they set the parameters, they set the rules. And so when you think about things like robotic process automation and artificial intelligence and, and all the other pieces of digital transformation, how we can capitalize on it in the best way requires us to get under the hood. And then the final thing I'll say going back to the workforce question is given the degradation of the workforce, coupled with what we've known for many years is a a tremendous shortfall in talent coming into government. Your, our, our mutual friend Nick Sinai had a, had a uh, tweet yesterday about statistics around federal IT workers in, in, in the VA and how imbalanced they are, the, the, the demographics are. That's an ongoing problem. But as we go through the digital transformation, we have to really be thinking through the workforce implications because there's going to be real impact. And so I think all of those things create kind of a new set of challenges And looking at it across agencies on a collaborative kind of enterprise basis opens the door, I think, to some really bold thinking.
0: I want to come back to that term digital transformation if we have time, stand. But you wrote uh, here, there's every reason to expect the government's focus on and pursuit of innovation will continue. You put innovation in quotes, which uh, reminds me that if you were saying it to me, you'd use air quotes. Why'd you do that?
3: Well, just for what I just said is that innovation, we've seen a lot of innovation. Innovation has become a ubiquitous term, and so I put it in air quotes or in actual quotes in the piece because I think we have to think about what does innovation really mean and and what does it actually get us. And that's the point I was making a moment ago, Mm -hmm. to really innovate, to really drive change. There's huge cultural changes that have to take place, and we have to be willing to get to do a degree of business process reengineering, not just digital reengineering and transformation.
0: Is it time to substitute the term digital transformation for IT modernization, do you think?
3: You know, I think it's semantics because IT modernization really in many ways often also refers to just the pipes, if you will, and upgrading systems and what have you, whereas digital transformation really gets you to that much broader sense of how work is done. Uh, so I think that they're, they're somewhat different terms, but they're also probably used too loosely and too, 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 too commonly. Uh, but when I think about things like how we do the uh, public benefits uh, uh, benefits and assistance to people, and you look at the lessons we've learned from the pandemic, And you realize that there were flexibilities placed in the CARES Act that enabled states to implement uh, CARES Act relief around uh, unemployment insurance, for example, in different ways, and how well that's worked. And 40 states have taken advantage of it. So now we have to start asking questions, well, if that works so well, why are we not just going to make that a permanent kind of change? Why are we not going to start thinking about how we can take those lessons from the pandemic and make them permanent? That's transformational. Uh, the digital is critical, and there's tremendous digital talent both involved in the transition. Just look at who's who's involved on the on the public list. Uh, but I think we have to go beyond that to get to really get to, to make change.
0: We just have a little bit more than a minute left, and I want to go back to the president's management agenda. What's not in the one in the in the PMAs of the past that you want to see in what President Biden releases?
3: Well, I mean, I think a lot of us are hoping the first thing that's going to come out is a withdrawal of some of the executive orders that have been so troubling. There's a Schedule F and the uh, equity and inclusion training executive orders. But I think what's not been in the management agendas as much as it needs to be in, recent, in pr- previous years is really the sense of cutting across the government, across agencies. We talk all the time about breaking down silos and, 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 and all that kind of thing about the way government is structured. We don't spend enough time thinking about cutting across agencies and really looking at how we could integrate programs and integrate data, do integrated applications and so forth that could really change the face and and streamline the face of how the government deals with the citizenry and also how it, it operates many of its other programs.
0: 20 seconds left. You want something that cuts much, much deeper than the cross agency priority goals then?
3: Cross-agency priority goals but in a, is a great idea, but how you actually have multiple agencies working together on a single goal. I'll take you one quick example. Uh, take food stamps, you have USDA, you have all other players involved in that. Eligibility for SNAP, eligibility for unemployment insurance. These are things that could be done using integrated data from one agency to another to save the beneficiary lots of time and, and reduce strain on the system. Um, There's a group called Families USA, which is going to come out with a paper soon called No Wrong Door. When you apply for uh, benefits in one place, why can it not spread across others? Those are the kinds of transformational changes. That's just one small example. But those are the kinds of cross-agency where you actually have multiple agencies involved in a single effort, a
0: single initiative. Stan Soloway, thanks very much, as always. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. And you get a preview of every one of our programs when you sign up for our daily program guide you just text gov matters to the number 58671 i'm back in two minutes coming sunday morning my television exclusive conversation with the administrator of the general services administration emily murphy that is sunday morning december 20th ten thirty on abc7 That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose.
3: Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.